Hello everybody, my name is Dr. Tom Hughes. I'm a neurologist down in Cardiff, and it's a great pleasure today to be interviewing for practical neurology, Dr. Nick Davis, who with his colleague, Dr. Michelle Toledano, has put together an excellent paper entitled Infectious Encephalitis, Mimics and Chameleons. Nick, thank you for joining us. How are you? Very well, thank you. And I hope the readers enjoy uh, the article. I'm sure they will. And Nick, you are a consultant neurologist in Chelsea and Westminster and in Charing Cross. But I assume infections of the nervous system are an interest of yours. Yes. As well as being a general neurologist, I have a specialist interest in neuroinfection. I'm particularly interested in viral infections of the central nervous system. And the viruses, um, I have a bit of experience with um, HIV and HDLV1 infection. Um, I really enjoyed your article, broad-ranging guidance about how to manage patients and some excellent tables that uh, uh, promoted my learning. So I'd love to hear you describe how you use the words encephalitis and encephalopathy and the important differences between them. Well, I think the semantics here are important. And I think in our day-to-day clinical practice, we see a lot of confusion by uh, people who perhaps have less neurological experience than ourselves. Encephalopathy, to me, means very specifically the confusion, the reduction in um, cognition. Encephalitis, very specifically, means that there's um, an underlying inflammatory process affecting the parenchyma of the brain, such if we were able to look at the parenchyma under the microscope, we would find an inflammatory infiltrate. Of course, the two are not directly synonymous because not all forms of encephalitis actually have encephalopathy. For instance, um, patients with lower brainstem inflammatory problems frequently have preserved level of consciousness. So the the two are certainly not synonymous, but clearly overlap. Interesting. So roughly what is the incidence of encephalitis? Well, it varies around the world. Here in the UK, we estimate probably an incidence of about five per 100,000 cases per year. But I, I should stress that's the syndrome of encephalitis, not infectious encephalitis. The incidence of HSV encephalitis is probably around one to two per million per year, so far less. Do you have any feel for how often a general neurologist is going to be asked to see a patient on the ward with a diagnosis of encephalitis? Well, I I suspect suspected encephalitis is at least a weekly uh, occurrence, if not more frequent. But actual proven cases of encephalitis are far fewer. I think in the average neuroscience centre, we're looking at um, three to four cases of proven herpes simplex encephalitis per year. Clearly, though, things uh, very much uh, depend on your case mix. And if you're working in an institution uh, with heme oncology, immunosuppression for organ transplantation, or a large HIV cohort such as myself, then the instance of proven infectious encephalitis is probably a a little bit higher. Um, You mentioned a term which is septic encephalopathy. 
could you just explain what you mean by that term? So when patients, when any of us have um, an intercurrent illness, um, we all have sickness behaviours. So uh, with flu, uh, our cognition is, is not up to scratch. And in severe sepsis, that's more marked. And there's good evidence that um, the cytokines and inflammatory processes that go on in sepsis have a direct and deleterious effect on central nervous system function. Now, that, I think, is often uh, the key differential for an infectious encephalitis um, at, at the coalface of medicine in the A&E department. So we are the historians. They are the storytellers. As clinical historians, what should we be looking for in the story that we hear the patients tell that is useful when making the diagnosis of encephalitis? I guess the first thing is that um, most often patients with encephalitis are encephalopathic. So it's very difficult often to get details of the history from the patient themselves. And this reinforces the importance of obtaining collateral history. But I think really you have to fuse um, two approaches. We need our classical neurological approach of uh, trying to think where the problem lies in the nervous system with the infectious diseases physician's approach, which is to think, why should this patient at this time and in this place have um, the putative problem? And to answer the infectious diseases um, questions, you need to think about the patient's immunocompetence, where they've been, what they've been exposed to. I think what the infectious diseases physicians bring to history taking, that perhaps um, we as neurologists are um, uh, less skilled at, is minutely dissecting um, the time course of what's happened over the preceding um, uh, days to weeks. And I think in infectious diseases, that's particularly important. It matters whether patients have had antibiotics before a lumbar puncture is performed. And, and these time-specific details, we perhaps as neurologists are slightly less good at obtaining, whereas for other matters, we're of course uh, very experienced in history taking. So when it comes to starting our investigations, do you think everybody should have an HIV test? Yes, that's in national guidance. Clearly, I may be described as having bias because I practice medicine in an area with a high prevalence of HIV. The reason that I think it's important is that um, HIV itself can cause a, a CNS uh, uh, infection. It can cause an encephalitis, particularly at seroconversion. Clearly, if you're immunosuppressed, uh, the range of organisms um, uh, which may be causing an encephalitis is much wider. And perhaps most importantly, um, HIV is a treatable condition and treatment of HIV has implications uh, not only for the patient, but um, for contacts of the patient as well. And are there any other tests that you think are obligatory in someone who you suspect has an infectious encephalitis? So where possible, I think it's important to try and, um, and determine the etiology of the encephalitis. And with CNS infections, examination of the cerebrospinal fluid 
is an important investigation. And I think where possible and where safe, patients um, need to have uh, a lumbar puncture and examination of the spinal fluid. In patients who are immunocompetent, who have suspected viral encephalitis, then I think in the first instance, it's reasonable to check for herpes simplex viruses, one and two, varicella zoster virus, and the enterovirus family by PCR. One of the things that we're all frightened about is this story that you can have HSV encephalitis with normal CSF. Is that really true? Yes, I think it is true. Um, Certainly in the series we've published, approximately 10% of patients have um, a normal CSF count, um, white cell count, at lumbar puncture. Uh, CSF obtained hyperacutely in herpes simplex encephalitis may well have a normal CSF count and may have a very low or undetectable HSV viral load. However, these patients uh, will manifest the typical signs and symptoms of HSV encephalitis. And certainly it's very unusual to have um, proven herpes simplex encephalitis and to have a normal MRI scan after 72 hours. So I think that you need to look at the patient, look at the clinical scenario and make your treatment decisions uh, based upon the broader picture, not isolated laboratory findings. Sounds like a very sensible approach indeed. So could I then ask you about um, HSV PCR? Is it really as sensitive and specific as we are led to believe? Uh, it's a very specific test um, and, um, and it's a sensitive test. Again, there's a, a window uh, where you're, in which in CSF you're most likely to detect um, uh, HSV DNA. And rather like the CSF white cell count, hyperacutely, there may be patients in whom the copy number of HSV DNA is low and you have a negative result. So if the patient looks as if they have herpes encephalitis, you have them on treatment for herpes encephalitis, but a hyperacute um, CSF, that's one that's been obtained within 12, 24 hours of onset of symptoms, is PCR negative. I would repeat the, uh, uh, the lumbar puncture, and I certainly wouldn't stop um, acyclovir treatment on the basis of that one negative result. Thank you very much, Nick. So when it comes to herpes simplex and there are radiological abnormalities in the temporal lobe, what are the important mimics of herpes simplex radiologically? Here, I guess, we're really talking about mimics of herpes simplex encephalitis because not all viral encephalitides lead to uh, temporal lobe changes. The MR differential is really wide. But the things that have particularly caught me out over the years are temporal lobe tumours, venous sinus thrombosis, and then slightly rarer phenomenon such as um, neurosyphilis. Of course, within the differential of uh, encephalitis are the autoimmune encephalitides, uh, which frequently uh, result in a limbic encephalitis. My experience 
with the autoimmune encephalitides is that the radiological appearances tend to be more symmetrical, less pronounced compared to the clinical picture and the severity of the encephalitis. We are inundated with acronyms. You mentioned clippers, but you also mentioned handle. Could you just inform our readers about what that acronym stands for? So HANDEL uh, stands for um, the syndrome of transient headaches and neurological deficits uh, with uh, CSF uh, pleocytosis. I, I think that this probably is a definite syndrome. What causes it, we're not clear of. It may have an underlying infectious etiology. Syndromically, it's characterized by recurrent episodes of headache, focal neurology, and when investigations are performed, a CSF pleocytosis is, is found. Often these episodes happen over a period of weeks to a few months, but the syndrome itself is thought to be monophasic and to have an excellent prognosis. Typically, uh, the focal neurological deficits features strongly to suggest an underlying um, migranous aura as potentially the pathogenetic mechanism. Is it helpful to describe this as a syndrome? Well, I think it is if it gives us a prognosis with which um, we can advise the patients. It's probably a rare syndrome. I think I've seen two to three cases in my eight years as a consultant neurologist. That's fascinating. <laughs> Having read your paper, the very next week I went to clinic and I saw a patient with another of these syndromic diagnoses, which is described the SMART syndrome, which is stroke-like migraine attacks after cranial radiation. Is that a syndrome that you also find useful? I do. And the illustrations that uh, Michelle has provided from the Mayo Clinic of the radiological findings in, in the paper beautifully uh, illustrate it. I'd also be intrigued to hear your view on the phenomenon of symptomatic CSF HIV viral escape. Um, listeners are probably very well aware that HIV establishes infection uh, within the central nervous system soon after um, seroconversion. And when we treat HIV, they usually monitor blood to ensure that uh, the HIV viral load is undetectable on antiretroviral treatment. What we know is that in a minority of patients, HIV in the brain is not adequately treated the virus replicates and sometimes it develops resistance to the antiretrovirals being taken. So these patients can present subacutely with subtle neurological deficits, very suggestive of uh, slowly slow onset HIV dementia of the past. Or sometimes uh, they can present uh, with a more uh, fulminant illness. So I think when assessing a patient with HIV who has neurological symptoms, it's important to um, consider examination of the cerebral spinal fluid. But when that's done, not only do you need to perform the test looking for 
opportunistic infections, but you also need to measure the CSF, HIV viral load. One thing I've always been interested in is this idea that varicella zoster can cause a vasculopathy. Is that true? And if so, how common is it? And are we talking about large blood vessels or small blood vessels? It's a very interesting question. I think in terms of the epidemiology, we don't know. Can it cause a vasculopathy? Well, it certainly can. In my experience, this is a rare phenomenon. In the immunocompetent, it more typically causes a large vessel vasculopathy, and that can result in ischemic stroke. In the immunosuppressed, uh, it can cause uh, a small vessel vasculopathy, and that more commonly will manifest as, uh, as an encephalitis as opposed to ischemic stroke. Perhaps the group of uh, clinicians with most experience of this are our pediatric uh, neurology colleagues who uh, see more vascular complications of uh, VZV than uh, adult physicians. That said, I am not aware of, of prospective studies looking for VZV vasculopathy in ischemic stroke. Thank you very much indeed. And there's a very helpful table for readers about other infectious causes of vasculopathy. I can't resist now asking you about a situation that many of us, I think, have found ourselves in. We very effectively treat someone with herpes simplex. Uh, we even do a lumbar puncture to check that their PCR is negative. They have a full course of acyclovir, but then they go home and come back a week or two later, with symptoms suggestive of a recurrence, but their PCR is negative, and we have to entertain the idea of this being an autoimmune phenomenon linked to the original problem. Can you just inform us about the important points there, please? This is an increasingly described phenomenon. Most of the literature actually, again, is from our pediatric neurology colleagues. But there are cases of autoimmune encephalitis following on as a consequence from a proven herpes simplex encephalitis. To my knowledge, um, most cases uh, described have um, related to NMDA antibody seropositive encephalitis. And most of the cases in the literature, the relapse or the second illness usually has typical features of NMDA encephalitis, i.e. there's often a movement disorder and um, difficult to control seizures. So phenotypically, it tends to look different to herpes simplex encephalitis. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. I've very much enjoyed uh, hearing you speak about this excellent paper, which is entitled Infectious Encephalitis. Mimics and Chameleons. Nick, thank you for your time. Thank you for putting together such an excellent publication. And I commend it highly to all the listeners and readers of Practical Neurology. Thank you.